Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and this week I'm starting a brand new series that is basically going to be um, going through the Bible through the lens of pagan polytheism. Because for those of you that do not know, um, the Bible as we know it today kind of came to be through various church councils and leaders and things kind of deciding what uh, written works were considered canonical and which ones were not. And that's why even to this day, different um, Christian traditions have different books in their Bibles. Um, The American Protestant Bible is different than the Catholic Bible, which is different than the Orthodox Bible, etc. and so on. Um, So... We're going to talk about how this process kind of came to be. We're going to talk about the different polytheistic origins and things that have influenced stories that most of us consider to be biblical stories. And um, it's going to be exploring how we can find wisdom in biblical literal, uh, excuse me, in biblical literature um, as pagans and as polytheists. And uh, some background information and some credentials, perhaps on my end, uh, for those of you that don't know. I was a seminary student for three years. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Comparative Religious Studies with a minor in Philosophy, and I'm currently working towards my Master's of Arts in Religious Anthropology. So aside from my own spiritual inclinations, I do feel um, qualified (laughs) to talk about this stuff. And of course, um, disclaimer, as with anything I ever say on this show, like these are my opinions and my opinions only. I do not speak on the behalf of any other individuals or groups or organizations and if you don't feel uh like you resonate with what i say or that if you feel like you believe something different or you were taught something different that is totally fine these are but the ramblings of one witch only so um we're going to start in the book of genesis in the first chapter and this is going to be um more of a literal word-for-word translation instead of like Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English. It's going to be more of a direct translation to English, and we're going to uh, do our best to remove the Christian biases and the retelling. So this is the creation of the world. In the beginning, the gods, plural, because the word that's translated from Hebrew um, is Elohim, which is plural. So in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. Um, The English verb create here captures the word bara, which in Hebrew means um, to make something new or to refresh. So this doesn't necessarily describe creating something out of nothing, but it's forming and renewing something that already existed. So that's something that's worth noting as well. So in the beginning, the gods renewed and refreshed the heavens and the earth. Now the earth had been formless and without shape. And the darkness was over the surface of the watery depths, but the gods were moving over the surface of the water, and they said, Let there be light. And there was light. The gods saw that the light was good, and they separated the light from the darkness. The gods called the light day and the darkness night. Then there was evening and then morning, marking the first day. So let's dissect that a little bit. So... In the beginning, this translation kind of assumes that the beginning is an absolute state rather than the beginning of something. So this isn't even necessarily referring to the beginning of time. This is referring to the beginning of this creation process. So 
this is really significant because this is implying that the universe already existed. That when the gods, plural, are creating the world and the Genesis story, they're not creating life and creating existence out of nothing. The universe already existed. So there was some primordial state of existence before this. And we see that evidence later on um, in verse 2. Um where it references the gods hovering over the surface of the waters. That means the waters already existed. And then that word bara means to refresh and renew. So there was already something that existed and had been created in a primordial sense. So here we see the gods giving it shape and giving it function. Um, and I think that's important to distinguish versus the one monotheistic God creating the universe out of nothing, which is what I think most of us probably were taught. So when it says the earth was without shape and empty, um, let's discuss that a bit as well. So the earth was without shape and empty and darkness is over the surface of the watery depths. Darkness, um, some people have kind of taken this to symbolize like evil or judgment or oppression, but this is literally just darkness. And then um, referencing the fact that they weren't creating the world out of nothing. They were giving it structure and reshaping it and renewing it. And the fact that the waters were already there, this darkness may be symbolic of like a state of disorder um, or a formlessness, but it's certainly not meant to be evil or to have a moral uh, connotation. The gods said, let there be light. Um, the prefix verb form, uh, which is vav, V-A-V, this kind of introduces a narrative sequence because 10 times in the chapter, it's the decree of the gods that creation will be expressed in a certain way. So this is showing us that there's a divine power in words. Um, it's the word of the gods that create things that gives law that gives order um and it's kind of nature obeying the words of the gods and then likewise a bit later on when it says let there be light and there was light and the gods saw the light was good the verb in hebrew means the gods called to or they named it and seven times we see the naming or blessing of something following the act of creation. So there's very clearly a point being made beyond the obvious idea of just naming something. And then in the Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish, um, the act of naming something was the same as creating it. So this is where we see some Babylonian influence, which is going to play into this very heavily. So likewise, in the Bible, the act of naming something is creating it and it's indication of sovereignty. So this is showing that the gods are sovereign in the universe. Okay, verse six. The gods said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. So the gods made the expanse and separated the water under it from the water above it, and it was so. The gods called the expanse sky there was evening and there was morning and it was the second day. So the Hebrew word uh, for expanse is referring to air pressure between the surface of the sea and the clouds. So this is separating the water above from the water below. Um, 
And some of the poetic texts, the writer's envision, among other things, something very, very strong and shiny. And this is where we get the word firmament, uh, which we see referenced later on in the book of Job. And it's referring to like a dome over the sky, basically. This refers to the sky as kind of being poured out like a mirror. And we see this also in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. And it's referred to as being shiny and almost metallic-like. So the sky or the atmosphere was kind of envisioned as being like a glass dome that covered the world. Verse 9. The God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. The gods called the dry ground land and the waters that they gathered were called the seas. And the gods saw that it was good. So with the water under the sky being gathered into one place, this is a reference to the fact that um, people writing at this time believed that water covered the entire earth. So for the water to be restricted to one area to form the ocean, this picture is one where the dry land is kind of an island being completely surrounded by the rest of the globe as the sea. And again, we see the sovereignty of the gods revealed because the pagans, keep in mind this is from a Christianish perspective, see the sea as a force to be reckoned with. And we're seeing Hebrew God, or gods in this case, controlling the boundaries of the sea. So this is another influence from like pre-Christian polytheistic belief of where they were kind of symbolically subjugating the sea gods. Um, there's a lot to that. So... Um, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. So when the waters are collected into one place, the dry land emerges above and the water kind of recedes. Verse 11. The God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation plants yielding seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds. And gods saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. So in the Hebrew construction, when it says vegetation, um, this is from a root that's actually a verb. So this is addressing the productivity of the act of, of uh, creation. So the word vegetation comes from the Hebrew word deshe, which means D-E-S-H-E, that Sometimes it's translated to mean grass, but um, here it probably refers more generally to just kind of plant life in general. And vegetation is showing that there's kind of categories to it. And it's referring to vegetation like on the ground and trees specifically, and that'll become more relevant um, later on. Verse 14. The God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be signs to indicate the seasons and the days and the years and let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give lights on the earth. And it was so. The gods made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. The gods made the stars also and placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth to preside over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. The gods saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Let's dissect that. There's a lot. So in verse 14, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night. Light itself 
was created before the light bearers, right? Because in the very, very beginning of the chapter, the gods say, let there be light, and there was. So it's a normal point of confusion to say, oh, well, why were there two creations of light? Well, one was light itself, the existence of light uh, as a concept, if you will. And here specifically, the gods are creating the light bearers, which are the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, and to the Hebrew mind of ancient times, this would not have been strange because they did not necessarily associate the sun with daylight because dawn and dusk to the naked eye appear to have light of their own without the sun. So let there be light to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to indicate the seasons and the days and the years. So for one thing, this is a biblical argument for astrology. How can you say astrology is a sin if the gods, or in that context, God, singular, uh, is saying that they created the sun and the stars and the moon to be signs to mark notable events? But anyway... Um, for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Um, it seems likely that the meaning of these words, that signs is kind of the main idea, followed by the two categories of seasons and then days and years. Um, the simplest explanation is that signs for the fixed seasons. So the point is that the sun and the moon were to establish kind of seasonal celebrations. And that um, it's very significant that this is the sun and the moon that are set to establish the calendar because to this day, the Jewish calendar is both a solar and a lunar calendar. So the greater light was to rule over the day and the lesser night, excuse me, the lesser light to rule over the night. So the two great lights, um, the text goes to great length to discuss the creation of the lights. And it suggests that the subject is very important to the, the ancient people um, because the lights were deities the moon and the sun are gods. So this is affirming that these original gods that kind of emerged from the primordial state of creation where the waters were, they're forming things and shaping things to have um, function and purpose. They're also creating other gods. So this is very, very, very important. Um, the usual names for the sun and the moon are Shemesh and Yeri. And they are being described as deities here. So they were given dominion from the other gods to have divine rule over the night and over the day. Picking back up at verse 20. The gods said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. The gods created the great sea creatures and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. The gods saw that it was good and the gods blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. So let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly. The Hebrew text again uses... Um, Kind of a cognate construction swarm of swarms and this is to emphasize the abundance of fertility so the idea of the verb is one of swift movement back and forth to swarm um, and we see this usage again in the book of exodus to describe the rapid growth of the israelite people when they were held in captivity um, and then referencing the birds flying this is um, a different form of the verb polel rather than qual 
and it stresses um, a swarming flight. And again, this is just to underscore fertility and abundance. So, God bless them and said, be fruitful, multiply. Um, the translation blessed has been kept here for the sake of simplicity, but it would be more helpful to paraphrase it as the gods endowed them with fruitfulness or something similar to that, because it refers to the gods giving the animals the ability to reproduce. So the expression blessed kind of needs to clarify the different contexts because it's one of the unifying themes of the book of Genesis. It's this divine blessing that occurs after the work of creation that is intended to continue the work. So the blessing after something has been created is guaranteeing that it's going to be successful. So it's being used more so to mean to enrich, to endow. Um, and the most visible evidence of that is the pro productivity of the fruitfulness. So let the fish... Um, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, let the birds multiply upon the earth. So the instruction that the gods give to creation is a fuller expression rather than just they were blessed. Um, this means the gods enriched them with the ability to procreate. And it's not to suggest that they were like rational creatures that like heard literal words and obeyed them, but it does mean the fruitfulness of the animal world is a result of divine will. Um, and this is why we see a very repeated emphasis on be fruitful and multiply. And this adds to the abundance um, that the gods are giving to life. Okay, picking back up at verse 24. The gods said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. The gods made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds, and the gods saw that it was good. So, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. There are three groups of land animals that are being categorized here. Cattle and livestock, which mostly would be domesticated. Um, things that creep and move close to the ground, so insects, reptiles, rodents, and then wild animals, which would be in the fields and these three terms are kind of general classifications and they're not really given a whole lot of detail verse 25 excuse me verse 26 the god said let us make us and here we have and that's not even me like paraphrasing from the word elohim it literally just is in plural in the plain english but the gods said let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all of the earth and over all of the creatures that move on the earth. The gods created humankind in their own image. In the image of the gods, they created them. Male and female, they created them. And let's discuss. Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. So... A lot of Christian theologians try to interpret the use of the plural as just like the trinity of the Godhead, but I don't like that because it kind of imposes later Trinitarian concepts on this very ancient text, which was not the idea of the writers at that time. So some have suggested the plural verb indicates majesty, like the, the royal plural, but I believe this is just the divine counsel of the many gods because this is a very direct translation of a plural word 
for multiple deities. So humankind and our image after our likeness. The Hebrew word Adam, which can sometimes refer to a man, like as in not a woman, but this here refers to mankind as in all of humanity, male and female. Um, and the singular is clearly meant to refer to a collective that they may rule. Um, and it's specifically elaborated as being male and female, meaning that all genders are reflected in the nature of the divine. That they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds over the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. So this is referring to humankind being created in the image of the gods that they might rule over everything that was created that humans are called to participate in the heavenly order of the court of the gods so this divine image gives humanity the capacity to rule over everything else so verse 28 the gods blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And then again, blessed. It's kind of something we discussed a moment ago. Um, it's again referring to the capacity to be reproductive and to reproduce. So I'm not going to discuss that much more. Um, but fill the earth and subdue it. To subdue um, in this context is sometimes also translated to conquer. Um, but some of this doesn't really have the nuance that like adequately explains the context because humanity is not viewed as having like an adversarial relationship with the world. Um, this could likely be translated also as to harness the potential of the earth, to yield resources of the earth. So this is meant to cultivate fields to mine minerals, to use trees, to domesticate animals. So it's not saying that like humans should be tyrants and destroy the earth for their own purposes. This is meant to be a call to stewardship, to responsibly care for the earth and its creatures. Picking back up in verse 29, and this is where it gets very spicy. The gods said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food and to all the animals of the earth and to every bird of the air and to all the creatures that move on the ground to everything that has breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So again, there at this point, according to this story, everything ate plants. Everything was a vegetarian. Humans ate plants. All the animals ate plants. Then the God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant. Um, the text uses the word hine, which can sometimes be translated as behold, but it is used to express dramatic presentation, like the immediacy of something. Like, look at this. Look at what I'm doing right now. I'm giving this to you. So they will be yours for food. Um, and this is, again, a, a pretty prominently held opinion, even by like traditional Christian scholars, is that eating meat came after the garden and the serpent. That in the original state of creation, there was no taking of life to eat. It was not necessary. 
verse 31, the last one of the chapter. The gods saw all that they had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the Hebrew text uses, again, the word hine for the sake of vividness. But this is the gods uh, gesturing and pointing and calling attention to kind of what they've done so far. So that's our chapter. We're going to do... Uh, I don't want to necessarily commit to doing only one chapter at a time because obviously some of them are shorter than others. So if the chapter is long enough that it warrants its own episode, that's what I'll do. And then if they're short enough that I can get multiple in one, um, then I will do that as well. But let's take a break. Let's let's dissect and discuss. So that was the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And we've established that there was a state of creation that kind of primordially existed. Um, we see creation existing, but without having form or shape. And we see that the gods were hovering over the waters that were already there. And in their acts of creation, they're shaping the world as it is now. Um, let's talk about the numerology of Genesis chapter one. So zero before creation, before the days, right? It's the void. It's the undifferentiated consciousness. There is something, there's a divine spark, but it does not have intelligence yet. It does not have consciousness yet. It does not have personhood yet. So then after that, we see the Godhead, the Elohim, the multiple deities, the gods and the goddesses. Then the first day is light and the separation of light from darkness. It's the knowledge and the awakening, the first spark of life. The second day is the separation of the sky and the sea and the division and assigning of roles and functions. The third day is the separation of the land and the sea. This is where plant life is created. This is about fertility and abundance and the increase of life and movement. The fourth day is the sun and the moon that are set in the sky to mark the day and the night and to mark the years and the seasons. So this is again, the gods are now creating other gods. So when they're creating the sun and the moon and the stars, it wasn't just the sun means daytime, the moon means nighttime. It's the sun is a god that was given dominion over the day. The moon is a god that was given dominion over the night. And this is also where we see the introduction of what we probably now call astrology, that the stars are meant to mark the years and the seasons. This is about deeper knowledge and the understanding of life as being cyclical. The fifth day, Sea creatures and flying creatures. This is about abundance and new opportunities. It's about flying uh, creatures taking us to higher places, higher levels of consciousness, higher levels of awareness, knowledge, and the sea creatures taking us to depth and the knowledge below and the knowledge within. The sixth day is about the land creatures, the creation of humanity, and the responsibility of humans to be holy stewards of creation. This is about cultivation, science and art, agriculture, medicine, and harmony with nature. And that's where we're going to stop for now. Um, We will pick up with Genesis chapter two next week. I hope you guys enjoy it. I will see you next time.